This podcast contains details about sexual abuse and murder. In addition, this episode contains animal cruelty. Listener discretion is advised. In the first episode, we laid out the events of the night of the Stocks family murders. In upcoming episodes, we'll talk about everything leading up to that night. Today, we're talking about Heath's childhood, the family dynamic, and what life was like for the Stocks family. So before we get started and dive into everything, I want to take a minute and just briefly talk about the reception we got from the families when we went to Lone Oak. Yes, from both of Heath's aunts. They welcomed us into their homes, and we had great conversations with both of them. Janice showed us pictures and different keepsakes and family memories. And then Bonnie, Bonnie cooked us a home-cooked meal. We had chicken, salad, carrots, mm-hmm. and Fresh-made brownies, yes. which, awesomely enough, she sent home a plate with us to go. Mm-hmm. It was—I I can't stress enough how how welcoming they were. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because you have Janice, who was Barbara's sister, and you have Bonnie, who was Joe's sister. Both lost their sibling the night of the murders, yet both were just extremely welcoming and— and I'm sure that they've been asked a million times to tell their story, but they care and they want to help support. Yes, absolutely. And because of that, Janice and Bonnie will both be sharing their thoughts and memories throughout this episode. So let's get started by talking about Barbara. Yes, the matriarch of the Stocks family. A lot of the things that I think about Barbara is just she was just a very devoted mother. Like that's what I notice off the bat. When I read anything about her, when anybody talks about her, the videos, videos, pictures, she just beaming with pride and, you know, behind her children 100 percent. You know, one of my favorite things that I saw about her was when we watched that video, it was when Heath graduated Mm -hmm. and she was behind the camera. Mm -hmm. And then someone said, go on up there and they'd held it for her. And you could just see in her demeanor how proud she was. Mm -hmm. Yep. Heath was at the front of the church and she walked up there and stood right beside him and kind of looped her arm through his and patted his shoulder and just was smiling. And she was beautiful. Yes. She was, how do you say that? It's a majorette. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A baton twirler. She was a baton twirler. Yes. Yes. Every person that we talked to about her, including Heath, has said how compassionate, how loving, mm-hmm. gentle, kind. I mean, she really cared about Heath and, and Heather both. And she just had like smiling eyes is what I like to call them. Like you, you just see, like when she smiled, her whole face smiled. I And I can see the resemblance in her and Janice too, a mm-hmm. lot in that way. Yeah, very much. She was a people person. She was real outgoing. Well, she's devoted to her children. She would... Um, She'd worked uh, somewhere in the school so she could be with them. She she worked in different capacities with the school district. She worked in the the lunchroom. She would be a teacher's aide. I think there at the end she was in the high school working in the computer lab, maybe. They had just started that. She was active. Uh, like I said, uh, she had the kids. They took music lessons, were just devoted to their family and the kids and did everything they could uh, for their children. So backing it up just a little bit to Barbara's childhood, Um, she was raised with Christian values. Her family was very close, very loving, 
Her parents were uh, very devoted, and I think that's probably where she got it from. You know, she ha- she had that example, so that's that's what kind of influenced her parenting s- style. And yeah, her parents were loving and affectionate, not with just with the children, but also with each other. They told each other they loved each other. They hugged, they kissed, and, you know, they kind of were that example for their children, too, of what a relationship should be like. I'm sure she had kind of a vision of what she wanted for her family, her husband, her life. And I'm sure it was modeled after what she grew up with, what she was around. Janice did mention when we spoke with her that there was a large age gap between her and Barbara. Mm -hmm. And so Barbara was kind of a mother figure to her. And so I think that that motherly instinct shows through and not just like the videos we saw of her with, with her kids, but also, I mean, if she was motherly to Janice growing mm-hmm. up. And so I think that that was probably just something that was by nature, that she was just that compassionate, caring person. She was my sister. And um, now there was that age gap and she was almost like a second mom, really. They'd take us to the lake because my parents were older. They would involve us in in their trips and things. Uh, And then there at the end, I was married 10 years before I had a child. And it was the the year that uh, they all died. But um, I had just had Grant. And uh, at that time, I think she still worked at the school. And then she she actually had something to do with the extension office, the 4-H club. And she would drive down here to my house just to rock Grant on her lunch break. She'd hold Grant. He was a baby. And she'd rock him and she'd cry. She said they're precious when they're little. She says it just gets difficult when they grow up. And my mother, you know, I'd have these questions, first-time mom, and my mother would say, you know, honey, that's been so long ago. You just need to call Barbara. You need to ask her. And so um, it's, it's sad to say there at the last we were closer than we'd ever been. I think we touched on whereas Barbara's family was loving and and compassionate and, you know, her parents said they loved each other in front of the kids. And so everyone knew there was just a lot of love there. Joe's family, not so much. Mm-hmm. Like the complete opposite. They never said they loved each other. They never hugged each other. And that, and multiple people have said that in the interviews when we've talked to them. I'm sure it was disappointing for Barbara, too, to realize that her marriage wasn't going to be like her parents. One of the things we talked about for Barbara was how she kind of modeled her parenting skills after her parents, what she saw, what she grew up with. And it's pretty much the same for Joe. His dad was, from what we've heard, was verbally abusive and very rough on the boys. Joe was the type of father that his father was. My daddy, in terms of a model for what a parent ought to be, daddy was not demonstrative at all and... um, It was more like you kind of had to know that there was some love there. It was not that it was necessarily shown. Um, So it was, I'm not sure that Heath had good models to look at. Mm -hmm. I even, one time when I was talking to my uh, family physician, he said, well, you know, you didn't really have very good examples of what marriage is supposed to be. And I thought, holy cow, the doctor knows this. But Mama was 16 when she got married, you know, was pregnant and got married, so she didn't have a chance to grow up either. So lots of very poor underpinnings for any kind of personal relationship. 
And because of that, he was very strict. He had a short temper. He wanted things to be perfect. He expected the clean house. He expected dinner on the table when he got home. There's even a story that that Heath had told in one of his interviews where he talks about how his parents fought mainly about money. It was always money was the issue. Mm -hmm. And how Joe would just become furious even if Barbara didn't balance her checkbook. Joe wasn't just strict with Barbara. He had high expectations for his children, too. And he tells a story about Barbara being his kind of his safe place when it came to dealing with his dad. Barbara was somebody he felt safe with, comfortable with. He trusted her. His relationship with his mom was very different than the one he had with his father. He was always scared of his father because that's, I mean, as I think as far as he can remember, he was always saying that he was scared of his father from growing up. So along the same lines that you mentioned about Barbara being Heath's safe place, Heath talks about they had a rocking chair in their living room. And when things would be bad with him and his dad and he would hit him or beat him and whatnot, she would pull Heath into her lap and rock him in that rocking chair. And she would tell him, just be a good boy. Just be a good boy and everything will be okay. And when I first read about that, I kind of had a different reaction to it. It, it. My first thought was that it was kind of adding to the manipulation in Heath's life, just furthering the idea in his head that he was wrong and bad and that he needed to change in order to avoid the abuse or the beating punishment. But as I thought about it a little bit more and read a little bit more of the dynamic between Joe and Barbara, I kind of realized that that was her coping mechanism to avoid those kind of situations between herself and Joe. She told herself, just be good, don't disappoint him, make sure you do everything the way he wants you to do it, and you're not going to have to endure any of the abuse or consequences from Joe. So then that kind of made me realize that that was her trying to pass that coping mechanism on to Heath, just trying to help him avoid any of those situations as much as he could. That was kind of her way of protecting him however she could. That makes sense for sure. I can see that. The bad thing about that is all it really did was make it seem like what Joe was doing was okay and everybody else was wrong. And as long as everyone else just walked this fine line and kept him happy then nothing bad would happen. I know that in, until you walk in somebody else's shoes, you can't say, I would do this different. You can't say that. But from the outside looking into this, it's not good to have little kids think that. Another thing was Joe was an over-the-road trucker. So he was out of the house for a good chunk of the time. A lot of the things that Heath was getting in trouble for were things that happened while Joe wasn't there. For example, if Joe was driving for a week and he'd get home on the weekends... And he'd be told of all of the things that Heath had done, whether it be messing up in school or whatever kind of things that children get into. But when Heath would get in trouble for it by his dad, he kind of started to realize that these things are being told to his dad by his mom. So he kind of started to lose that trust in her and and lose that feeling of safety because he made the connection that these things that I'm getting in trouble for are things that my mom told my dad. You know, it just popped into my head when you said that. The scene from A Christmas Story, that's when they're sitting around the table and Ralphie gets in trouble 
and he knows that he's going to get it when his dad gets home and his mom winks at him and keeps a secret Mm -hmm. and he knows everything's okay then. And I think Heath did say eventually Barbara did start keeping things from Joe. She didn't tell him the full story or left some things out. So maybe she came to that realization, too, that she didn't have to relay everything to Joe when he got home. I can remember uh, mom sharing with my dad, and even before she get it out of her mouth, you know, he comes home and, you know, he may be dusty and dirty, um, or, you know, you could tell that he's, he's been away and, um, and, you know, her sitting down to talk to him and he hadn't even, you know, been home an hour and he's getting bombarded by, you know, uh, all these things that I've done. So he hasn't even had a chance to shower, sit down. And next thing I know, I'm being snatched up and taken into the living room or slapped away from the kitchen table because, you know, mom's, te- mom's over here cooking and we're, you know, uh, sitting at the table and waiting on supper. She's talking he's looking at me and then bam I'm in the floor and you know the next thing I know he's picking me up and and whooping me and you know uh, saying you're going to listen to me you're going to do what I tell you to do or else I'm going to beat some sense into you I'm going to make and you know I can you know remember that and remembering uh, you know just just trusting my mom because mom would share with dad when he wasn't there and what she shared with him led to this. So mom's no longer a safe place. Mom's a part of what's happening. My mom was more hesitant to tell my dad because of the the, the beatings. She saw it begin to escalate. So a little bit about Joe. Joe went to college for agriculture because his father was a farmer and so he wanted to get his degree and work for him he goes to college he gets his degree soon after that his father stops farming we've heard multiple different reasons why so we're not completely sure of the reason why we've been told that the farm just folded we've been told that joe tried to tell his father how to run the farm and that didn't go over well and so he quit farming because of that so the reason is unknown but either way Joe no longer had that farm to work on with his agriculture degree, so he went into logging. So he becomes a logger. He has his own business. Apparently, at some point, he doesn't keep up on the workers' comp insurance. They have a pretty bad accident, and that will definitely catch up on you if you don't have the insurance you need for your employees, and it did. So it caused a huge financial issue for the family, which resulted then in more fights. And so there was a big chunk of money that came out. Joe, I think, always wanted to, he lived on this level. He really wanted to live up here. Mm-hmm. And he tried. But, you know, it, it's, there just wasn't, there was no way to get from here to there if you were, a, you know, cutting logs. Or probably if you were a farmer. But, but a logger is lower down on the socioeconomic, you know, who's who kind of thing. And then he started hauling, you know, driving trucks and stuff. And that's, you know, you're inside your own head for an awful lot of that time. Mm-hmm. And I know that I asked Joe one time there toward the end, he had bought a motorcycle for Heath. Or may, I don't know if I, Joe told me himself or one somebody 
I said, why on earth did he buy that? You know, and he said, to keep peace in the family. Because apparently Heath was just being a total asshole and you get him the motorcycle and maybe he'll shut up. If Joe hurt Heath, it was not deliberate. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And same way with Barbara. I think he was rough with Barbara. But, you know, they grew up beating on each other and like, how tough are you kind of thing. And so there again, what, what kind of model do you have? And if you're not tough enough, then, you know, we're gonna put you down because you're not, you're not tough. My gut feeling is that as financial pressures grew, then Joe got more and more uh, belligerent, uh, bullying. The stress of money really seems to be what kind of drove Joe's moods. They fought a lot about money. And also, Joe didn't like people to know that they fought like that mm -hmm. because he wanted everything to stay at home. What stays in the house, what happens at home stays in the house. Very private person. He wanted to put on this persona also to everybody else that they were, like you said, just a, a happy family. Everything was perfect. There were no problems. And also, he wanted to keep up with appearances, keep up with the Joneses, as they say, just be on the same societal level as what his idea of success was. That's what what he was striving for. And a lot of the people that they hung around with did have money. And so he wanted to be in that same bracket mm -hmm. as them. So like you said, he would put on appearances to try to make people think that they did have that money. The worst thing to Joe was anything bringing shame on the family name. He didn't want any scandal or, you know, anything like that. That just goes back to everybody had to be in line. Everybody had to be in their perfect role. Dad was, you know, very strict about um, us being clean, you know, brushing your teeth, uh, taking care of yourself, um, being up early, making up your bed, picking up your clothes, uh, having your uh, closet organized, you know, things in order. Um, uh, you know, he was one of those no back talking, you do what you're told. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you don't, uh, he was very, um, very specific about not bringing him shame, not shaming the family fa name, uh, his name, uh, the identity uh, that he believed that, um, that that should convey to other people. He was very, very, um, Concerned with that, you know, it was all about you know how you reflect on him. When mom doesn't do what he expects her to do, you know, he's screaming at her, shaking her, slamming her up against the wall, and you know, just do what I'm telling you to do. Or you know, uh, mom uh, fell into uh, balance her checkbook. You know, I remember that being something big for them. You know, and him coming home and you know, fights, a lot of times they would wait until we were asleep or something and they would have this fight. You know, sometimes it didn't. Um, but my dad was so loud that I, as a child, I can remember feeling fear because you could hear, it just seemed like everything vibrated with this uh, deep, um, 
just the, the, the sound and the overwhelming quality of his, his screaming and a voice, a deep voice that was, you know, very threatening. What have I told you about what happens in our home stays in our home? And, you know, you don't appreciate what I do for the sacrifices I make for us as a family. But he obviously didn't keep it from everybody because, I mean, you can try to hide what you want. But there are multiple stories where he would be abusive to Barbara and Heath both. And then Barbara would try to cover Heath's bruises with makeup, too, so that kids at school wouldn't see. And there was one story that Heath's grandma, Dorothy, which was Joe's mother, she tells in an interview about how she would be going over to their house to visit and she'd be walking up the driveway and could hear Joe yelling. And that would kind of... She would just stop and turn around and decide not to visit because he was in one of his moods, so to speak. Another thing that really contributed to the financial strain was Heath had some disabilities growing up. So he had ADD. He had a severe underbite. He was pigeon-toed and he had IBS. So these are all things that would require medical attention and would be just more bills piling on the family. Whereas... Heather didn't have those issues. Heath had those issues. And so Joe then would become angry at Heath as well for having those issues. Mm -hmm. Take it out on him, even though it wasn't his fault. But he still, Heath was the, the scapegoat to blame. If you didn't have these issues, we wouldn't have to pay this money. And then when Barbara would try to protect Heath, then she would get it too. Society has always told men to be strong and not show emotions and to be the breadwinner and provide for your family. And I really think that Joe was a product of this mentality to a fault. And I also think that this is the reason that Heath never got the love and affection or attention and praise that he craved so much from his dad. And a very high expectation from, from his daddy and probably from his mama. He probably suffered from undue stress that none of us will ever experience. Don't know. But, you know, on, on the other side of that, because I have to say for Joe, he absolutely worshipped the ground that his kids walked on. He would have done anything under the sun to make them happy, to make them feel safe and warm and comfortable. Um, well, sometimes it didn't come across that way, but... In his heart of hearts, he was, you know, they were his kids and they were, they were wonderful. They sure. was, you know. And if Joe did love Heath and was proud of him, he was not able to show it. So Heath never felt it or saw it. And I believe that Joe was trying to instill those that same mindset in Heath by constantly pushing him and never letting him feel like he was good enough. That's a really good point. And as you said that, I was thinking about the story that Heath had told, where he talked about how when his dad would beat him, he would hug him and say he loved him afterwards. And that's the only time he would tell him that he loved him. And that has to be really confusing for a child. I don't want to give the impression that there weren't times when things were good. You know, like I said, there were, um, there were times when, you know, I, I, I almost believe that it wasn't as bad as I really thought it was. And then something would happen that reminded me, yes, it is. Just because, you know, we have these moments where everything's nonviolent and everything's peaceful doesn't mean that there's fixing to be a disappointment. There's something that's fixing to happen. You're either going to do it or you're not going to do something and you're going to get reminded. 
And you're not going to know it until you get slapped in the mouth or you get beaten. And then it's, you know, and always remember hearing my dad say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And after I got through one of those beatings and I had uh, welts all over me and I've got the taste of blood in my mouth and one of my eyes is weeping because he's been slapping me, it's, you know, it's hard for me to believe that this is hurting you more than it's hurting me because, you know, I'm feeling all these things and, you know, here you are afterward trying to hug me and tell me that you love me. Why is it that the only time you tell me that you love me and you hug me is after you've beaten me? That, you know, that was, you know, totally uh, foreign to me um, and went against everything that I saw at my mom's house, my grandfather, the way he interacted with my aunts and my uncle and, you know, hearing other people talk about their fathers at home and how they, you know, hearing other kids talk, you know, I, there were things I knew that were missing. So while we talk about Barbara being Heath's safe place, Heather was definitely his safe place, his protector. She didn't endure the same things that he did growing up, obviously, and he had trouble reading. And so he said he didn't really read his first full book front to back until he went to prison, because before that, he would struggle so much that she would read to him and she would help him and try to help him get good grades because she knew what would happen if he didn't. So she was always looking out for him, always trying, trying to be there for him and be that person. They were really close. You know, there was just a, a, what, a year and a half, two between them. They were close. They were loving brother and sister. Even there at the the last, they were always close. I didn't think they they had any fights or anything. They had a good relationship. Heath and Heather did. He was going to college. It wasn't working out too well. But he was a hard worker, and he'd had, like I said, some jobs. I think he had said he was looking into the military uh, as a possibility. He was a hard worker, and he made good grades. He could have done anything he wanted to do. And then Heather, she was an intelligent girl. She'd actually done real well uh, on her uh, ACTs, and she had a lot of uh, scholarships coming in, and she was deciding on which university to choose. I don't even know if she declared a major specifically, but, you know, the sky was really the limit. Either one of them could have done, you know, whatever they had set their mind to. The possibility was there. But she was valedictorian. And she had a lot of friends that loved her very much. Some people thought at times that she was stuck up, maybe snotty, but it was because she was shy. She had the best heart. And to hear, you know, all these different interviews we did with people, they talk about what just a good, kind person she was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like you mentioned, she was valedictorian. She was also a cheerleader. She had a full-ride scholarship to Memphis College. She was just very dedicated and driven and... One of the things that stands out to me is when when we went over to Janice's to interview and she had that table laid out for us with all of those pictures and newspaper articles and boxes of memories. And there was just so much stuff for Heather and just 
photo albums of, you know, those little cards that you get whenever somebody gives you like a bouquet of flowers. It was a photo album full of those cards. Just congratulations, Heather, or good luck, Heather. She had so many people who were, you know, just cheering her on. She was kind of successful at anything that she did, pretty much. It's funny you mentioned that table because as you were talking about it, I was thinking about that table. And there were boxes also of her trips with her friends. And, you know, she went to Europe and you could see how much everyone loved her. And I think I just feel like her going abroad is kind of a big deal for somebody from such a small town. So whenever I hear that, I'm always just like, wow, that's pretty big. She was planning on going abroad for modeling, even. She did try to help Heath a lot, be there for him, talk to him after he went through one of one of his beatings that he endured from his dad. She always tried to not get in the middle of it, obviously, but then to be there for him after. And she knew that he was going through stuff. She knew that he had a lot of stuff going on. And so she would try to help him when she couldn't. She started volunteering at the suicide prevention hotline. And she told people that if she couldn't help Heath, she wanted to be able to help somebody. Which is pretty big for that time period, too. You know, there wasn't a lot of talk about suicide or suicidal thoughts or anything like that. So for her to take that initiative and volunteer for something like that, I kind of feel like she was ahead of her time almost. I would definitely agree with that. Because in 97, there wasn't a lot of that going on. It was very taboo to talk about. Right. So you didn't really see people in high school volunteering to help other people that might be going through things like that. So one of the things that I found interesting in regards to Heath and Heather's dynamic was just that even though they were on kind of two opposite ends of the spectrum as far as Heath always struggling in school and Heather always being so successful and it just kind of came natural to her, there really wasn't any animosity there or jealousy on Heath's part towards his sister. It really kind of seems like everything that kind of compares and contrasts Heath and Heather is you know, from outside, from everybody around them looking in saying, you know, Heather's like this. Why isn't Heath like this? Like I said, she was very smart, probably to the point of making, probably making Heath unhappy sometimes because she could catch on to things faster than he could. Mm-hmm. And, um, but she was just good as gold. She was not afraid to do anything. She'd jump in there and do whatever it took. And she was a girly girl. She was beautiful. When she was decked out, she was pretty. Heath was like 142% boy. <laughs> you know, he, he would, if you could name it, he could get into it. Heath was more hesitant, not as outgoing. And it's really hard for me to separate what I know now and what he was as a child. Because, again, I wasn't around him a whole lot. And that's really sad because he just lived, you know, across, across the way. I guess I thought Joe and Barbara were taking care of him, and so when they, you know, mm-hmm. I always thought they would be, since I didn't have any children, they would be the people who would take care of me when I got old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> didn't happen. Multiple people in the different interviews have said, oh, well, you know, Heather was straight A, Heath struggled, mm-hmm. this, that, just back and forth, back and forth. But then you also have, for example, when we talked to Keith, and he had said, Heather was off limits. Mm-hmm. Everyone knew Heather was off limits. Like Keith, Keith was very protective of her too. Mm-hmm. He yeah. wouldn't even let his friends date her. And Keith was his best friend. <laughs> <laughs> he said no. Yeah. <laughs> so something interesting, while Heath and Heather were seen as polar opposites from a lot of people, in some ways they weren't. 
because Heath was very popular in school, very charming. He had tons of girlfriends and he was actually homecoming king. Yeah, he was, like you said, outgoing, charming. He was on the football team. He was involved with different activities and stuff like that. So even though he struggled with some of his grades, he was he was still active in in his high school career. So to back up a little bit, I had mentioned that Heath had an underbite. So that meant that his bottom teeth came out much further than his top teeth, correct? Correct. I had this a very similar situation. Really? So I know exactly how that goes. So whereas, thankfully, I was able to get braces, Heath's parents didn't have a lot of money. So they took him to an orthodontist that had a tongue depressor. And so for an hour or two... He had to sit still and his mom would stick the tongue depressor in and he was supposed to bite down on it and she would pull. Oh, my gosh. So as a kid, that sounds hellacious. Trying to get a child to sit still while you did something that was uncomfortable and painful. And, you know, I'm sure she's like, this is to make your smile better. This is to make your teeth pretty. And to a kid, it's just like, just leave them alone. They're fine. (laughs) Right. So when you're a kid and you're going through that, you obviously want to be doing other things besides sitting there having your mom pull on your teeth for a couple hours a day. And and Heath would say he was going through this and he would wait for anything, the phone to ring, something to happen to where his mom would be distracted and do something else and out the door he'd go. He was done. But then his dad would find out his parents were paying money for this orthodontist and he would be furious when he got home and found out that Heath had ran out when he was supposed to be having his treatment Mm -hmm. done. Yeah, because in Joe's mind, that's wasting his money. As a kid, you know, I mean, it was like it was hell. You know, I didn't, I did not want to do that. I didn't want to bite this stick and have her pulling on my teeth. And you know, she, you know, she telling me, you know, but it'll make your teeth pretty, and you know, we want you to have a, a pretty bite, and we want you to, you know. Um, and so, you know, my sister, she didn't have this problem. So, you know, here I am going through this, and of course, if, if the phone rang or anything happened. I'm getting one of the doors trying to get outside and get away from. And so when dad comes home and, you know, they've been spending all this money on these doctors to fix all my problems and I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do and they just help them fix it. Then so then so he's going to beat me in submission. You didn't do what I told you to do. And that was to let your mom do this and you. And so, um, you know, while, uh, you, know, I, you know, I get that now, back then, I just, as a kid, it just seemed like there was, there was something always to matter. So to talk a little bit more about Joe, what he was like and what he was capable of, I want to read a letter that Heath wrote that tells a story from when they were growing up. They had dogs and they had chickens. They had a lot of animals. And so Heather had a dog named Bear, and Bear loved to chase the chickens. And Joe hated that because Joe did not want anything to happen to those chickens. So the stocks went away on a trip with their neighbors. Everyone had a great time. When they got home, this is where the letter starts. The joy from our trip was instantly forgotten. The evidence of a betrayal everywhere. And no one could see Bear. Dad's face reflected a dangerous anger. His prized chickens and turkeys dead everywhere. And we were rushed into the house by Mom. As dad stormed into the living room, he was going after a gun and the realization making my stomach turn. As he stomped back out, the pistol was gripped in his hand. We could hear him outside, calling, praying that Bear was smart enough to stay away. 
but Heather and I both kept trying to look outside to see what was happening. Dad came barreling back in, sweating and cursing, this time headed to the refrigerator. Finding a package of leftover lunch meat, he pulled some out, while in his other hand, he held a sledgehammer. Bear knew she had done wrong, recognized the anger in Dad's voice like we all could, and she had fled under the car where Dad didn't want to risk a shot. Instead, we watched as he used the meat to coax her out, calling her name softly while offering the bait. As soon as she came out far enough, the hammer fell and then continued until the yelps and anger faded away. I can still remember the bloodied hammer slinging blood against the white paint of the garage, Dad using the water hose to wash away the violent display, and later finding Bear's battered corpse in the ditch where he tossed her. It was traumatizing to witness Dad beat our beloved dog to death, but no less harmful when he later demanded that I put some pups down in a similar fashion. He had told me to keep the bitch and heat away from the others. Beagles didn't have sense enough not to mate with their own, and I did my best to keep them apart. The female had gotten knocked up by one of her brothers, a fact that he sneered at me about, and the pups would no doubt be deformed as a result. If that was the case, then I would have to deal with them. I remember the cold day it happened. There was snow on the ground and the air smoked with my breath, and Dad had called me outside to look at the newborns. He had a cardboard box in his hand as we walked out to the pen. He handed it to me and told me to put them in the box. It made me just sick to think what might happen, and the mama dog was so happy to see me. She was a good dog, didn't deserve this, and she didn't understand why I was taking them out of the house. I could see their little legs, deformed and useless, but they were still babies and they cried in the cold. The mama dog jumped up and down, worried for her litter. As I let myself out and followed dad into the pasture, tears were cold on my cheeks as I followed his steps in the snow. And there beside the well house, he paused, waiting. He stood there, huge and hard, looking down at me as if I was one of those pups, and then taking one by those useless legs battered it against the cinder blocks. The cries had stopped in a wet crunch. The body hung limp in his fingers, and without pause told me that I had to do the rest. It was my fault that they were that way. I had caused this, and I would finish what he started. Oh, how it still hurts to think of those moments a little boy being asked to kill those innocent babies. And as I looked up, shaking my head, felt the beginning of hate. Do it, he said. We would be there until it was finished. The first one, I didn't swing hard enough, and it began screaming. And only after the second hit did it go silent. One after another. Their troubled screams were silenced. At my hand, until the box was as empty as my heart felt. I can't remember if I buried them. The cold, hard earth wouldn't have been easy to dig up. But I remember Dad watching until I finished, with eyes that held no warmth. He grunted when the deed was done, started away, and left me to face the mother who had watched us kill her babies. She whined at me when trudged by, searching the corners of the cage for those lost. And as time passed, she forgot. For life, I would not. At least their little eyes were sealed shut, unable to see so that they too couldn't judge me. So let's talk about that, Katie. I really feel like oh, what a defining moment 
in somebody's childhood to have to go through something like that and for it to be something that you're ordered to do by your dad. Because you were responsible to keep two dogs apart. And Heath was a child. He didn't know anything about that or what the consequences could be had two dogs that were siblings mated. And why would he know that? It blows my mind. I mean, you know how I am with dogs. Right. It blows my mind that that somebody could just, even even Heather's dog, Story Bear, mm-hmm. that you could go get fresh meat to coax a precious little dog out for doing what they normally do, chasing chickens, doing whatever, and then just kill it with a sledgehammer. Something's not right there. Mm-hmm. And to do all of that while your children are watching. And then turn around and make your child kill puppies. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder, too, what was going through Barbara's head? Like, I mean, if your husband was doing that, I mean, I guess she was probably scared to say anything again. I was just going to say that probably just instilled fear in all of them. I'm sure it did. Because if you watch someone do something like that and you know what they're capable of, what would they do to you? Mm -hmm. So while Heath was going through all this with his dad and, you know, his mom comforting him, Heather trying to help him, he didn't really have anyone outside the family that he really trusted. He did keep crossing paths with Jack Walls, who was well-known in the community. He also was very close with a lot of the neighbors. So the Stocks family was also friends with Karen and Charlie Knox. Karen's sister was Jack's wife. So it was very close-knit. Everybody was close. And so Heath would see, you know, Jack was this great guy. They didn't really have a lot of interactions at that time, though. He would just see him. And just think what a good guy he was. But it got to a point where Joe and Heath, I, th- I think Joe just was just done. He, he couldn't do anymore. So the Stoxes were talking to the Knoxes and the Knoxes said, hey, Jack helps us with our kids. He's a scoutmaster. He's really good at, at, at being a mentor to these young boys. Maybe he could help out. Yeah. And at first, Jack was everything that Heath was craving in his life. He was love and affection and pride and praise. And he took Heath under his wing and he taught him so many things. And like you said, Heath just, he thought Jack was great. He was the greatest thing to come into his life. And unbeknownst to Heath and to the Stocks family, that's where Jack's grooming began. Because he is gaining Heath's trust and also the trust of the family. And, you know, they're they're saying, you know, take our son and guide him and mold him. Jack had the trust of everybody in that situation. And that's exactly how he wanted it. One thing he did use, too, to get the boys to trust him and to come over more, come around him more, is since he worked at Remington... He had access to all sorts of guns, and he kept those guns in his house, and he would invite those boys over, come over and see my guns, come Mm -hmm. look at my guns. Well, of course, a young boy is going to say, yeah, I want to come over and play with guns. Right. And that was one of Heath's first memories, too, was when Jack said before, scouts even, he met him and said, hey, I have these guns. You should come over and check out my guns sometime. And you know what I just thought of when you were saying that is Heath also tells a story about the different stages of growing up and how his, you know, his dad would give him like at at this age, he got a BB gun. And then he once once he reached this age, he was 
old enough and responsible enough for a 22 and so on. And I would imagine that going over to Jack's and just having access to those things that at home Heath wasn't old enough for, not responsible enough for. And here's Jack saying, I believe in you enough to handle this, you know, handle these weapons, kind of giving Heath that trust and, you know, making him feel like he was, you know, more responsible and worthy, basically. That's a good point. And I, I'm sure it also instilled a level of confidence in him that he didn't have previously. Because mm-hmm. you have to think if somebody is continually beaten down by somebody and then you have another person enter and be like, hey, you can handle these guns. Mm-hmm. Come over here. We'll talk about it. It's all good. Right. It's going to change things. Absolutely. So once Heath had that confidence, you know, and Jack's working on that confidence, you know, gaining his trust, he then decides, I'm going to introduce you to the rest of the boys. He's a Cub Scout now. So he's going to meet the rest of Jack's boys. And along with that comes a lot more, I think, than people bargained for. A lot of questions, a lot of questions that should have been asked but weren't Mm -hmm. at the time, such as Heath's mom found what she believed to be semen and blood in his underwear when he was a little boy and confided that to her mother, but nothing else was done. In the next episode, we will be diving into the creation of the monster that is Jack Walls, whose reign of terror spanned three decades. How did this man gain the trust of so many families to the point that he had unlimited access to their young sons? How was he able to control so many boys and keep them quiet about what was going on? How did Jack choose the boys that made up this special group that he referred to as the Order of the Arrow? And how did he get away with it for so long? I suspect if we knew all the the ins and outs and the details, well, it's just like all the rest of the story. Nobody can believe that it's true. I mean, you can't go out and write this kind of horror story, you know, Stephen King might be able to, but nobody else could put the fear and the horror that, you know, Jack and apparently put in all kinds of folks. Life Without, the untold story of Heath Stocks, is brought to you by Watts Productions and Block Party. Produced by Dylan Edward Allen, Colby Watts, and Katie Anthony. Archival materials provided by the Stocks family, the Harris family, Samantha Jones, and the Freedom of Information Act. Music by Colin Thomas. All information in this podcast is based on interviews from people close to the case, never-before-seen insider documents, legal documents, FOIA documents, victim impact statements, and sworn affidavits. All parties mentioned in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty. For more information on this podcast and Heath Stocks, visit heathstockspodcast.com. For more information about the groundbreaking Scouts film, which features Heath Stocks, visit scoutsdocumentary.com.